Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. I'm particularly excited about this episode because it brings poetry to our airwaves. In this podcast, we almost always train our sights on various ways in which racialized capitalism in the 21st century saps workers and working class communities and imperils our democracy and the planet. Given the nature of these discussions, they risk tuning out the heartbeat that motivates them, the people who pray and dream, who line up inside the check cashers, play dominoes outside of bodegas, or pick up basketball at the court down the street. Yet this is precisely what the descendants of Walt Whitman bring us. The precision, the care with language, and the lyricism of poetry make it especially capable of revealing what it means to be human, the wounds, the longing, even the hilarity. The writer Marcel Proust once said, and I'm paraphrasing, the purpose of the artist is to draw back the veil that leaves us indifferent before the universe. And because poetry at its best shuns cliche and uninterrogated wisdom, It's an antidote to the sort of familiar rhetoric in which social justice work sometimes gets mired. The poetry of our guest, Gregory Pardlow, is some of the finest engaged work written in the US today. He brings us the striking air traffic controller permanently replaced, selling off everything but his house, his young son outside that house, speaking to snowflakes. He brings us the glory and the grace of girls jumping double dutch. He brings us an impoverished old man asking to hold the hand of a recovering alcoholic so that together they can toss a coin into a fountain and wish for something else. And Pardlow's work helps us imagine what that something else might be. Pulitzer Prize winning poet. He's the author of two books of poetry, Totem and Digest, as well as Air Traffic, a memoir of ambition and manhood in America. He directs the Master of Fine Arts program at Rutgers Camden and is currently visiting professor at NYU's campus in Abu Dhabi. And he joins us from Senegal today. Welcome, Greg. Thanks, Paula. Hi. Thanks for having me. I wonder if we might start you off with with some poetry. I've heard you say on occasion that 
if the Pulit- winning the Pulitzer did anything, it, it helped bring your work to a larger audience. And that's, of course, what I had in mind today. So why don't we get started with uh, Winter After the Strike? Sure. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Yeah, and, and just to thank you again for, for having me. I've been <clears throat> looking at different ways to bring my work to new readers. And, and this is a tremendous opportunity to bring together two communities that I am very much identified with. So as I, the title suggests, my father, well, I don't know if the title suggests it, but my father was an air traffic controller in 1981 when the PATCO, the Air Traffic Controllers Union, went on strike. President Reagan, Ronald Reagan was uh, in office maybe six months or so, not even at the time, and had promised a lot of things to the union prior to being elected. And once he was elected, as we're not surprised, as often happens, that story changed. And so we'd gone into the strike or into the year, that new year, very hopeful and, and optimistic. And by August, the not only had the prospects changed in the in terms of the what that job would bring for my father, but it altered his life, my life, my entire family. And as I've discovered from meeting people as in my travels who are also uh, connected to the industry, many, many, many lives, if not the labor, <laughs> the unionism in general. So the title is Winter After the Strike. Perhaps we are each a cresting echo, vibrant with the moment before rippling back. But you're as steadfast as Odysseus, strapped to the mast, as you were in 81 when Reagan ordered you back to work. You were president of the union local you steered with your working man's voice, the voice that ground the Ptolemaic ballet of air traffic to a temporary stop. You used it to refuse to cross the picket line. I walked with you outside Newark International. I could see the dark turnpike for miles, the somber office buildings winking insomniac cells, the tarmac spread before us like a picnic blanket, and you, like a jade Buddha, suffused in the glow of that radial EKG. You pushed the microphone in front of me, nod and let me give the word. I called all my stars home, trajectories bent on the weight of my voice. You say you miss tracking those leviathans, each one snagged on the barb of your liturgy. I too get reeled in by the hard, now rusty music of your pipes. I follow it back to the day of your accident and the story you tell. You were 16, hurdling railings, dividing row house porches from one end of Widener Place to the other to impress mom. I imagine the way you cleared each one like a leaf bobbing on water, catching the penultimate, the rubber toe of your Chuck Taylors kissed by the rail, upsetting your rhythm and you roiled in the air headlong, arms outstretched, stumbling toward the last like one hell bent or sick to the stomach. The way you landed on your throat, the rail could have taken your head clean off. Since then, your voice issues like some wartime communique, a ragged typewritten dispatch, which you swallow with your smoker's cough, black as a tire spinning in the snow. That winter after the strike, 
We were so poor, you sold everything but the house. Tell me, Dad, when you'd stand at the door calling me in for the night, could you hear me speaking to snowflakes falling beneath the lamppost? Could you hear me out there imitating you, imitating prayer? I should have said in, in part of my introduction that was something we cannot do, can't even imagine anymore in this uh, climate, is that my way back when, when I was a very little boy, my father would take me to the, to the tower with him. And I'd spend the night when he worked uh, the graveyard shift, and I'd spend the night with my sleeping blanket on the floor in the tower. And occasionally he would let me you know, read off the, the call, the instructions to, to airplanes, but then the pilots would get a big kick out of it. It was a, <laughs> a thrilling experience. Might make the rest of us a little nervous about flying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, I'm in this poem, I'm I'm really moved by the interplay between power and vulnerability. So the power of the father, his very work calling in the Leviathans the union, the power of the union to, to, to strike and to call it all to a halt. And then the vulnerability showing, showing off to his future wife, I take it, in a way that nearly de decapitates him. And then the permanent replacement and he and 13,000 other strikers out of work and the, and the boy outside speaking to snowflakes in prayer. That's great. Yeah. And there was something about that image that suggests to me, and I, and I say suggests to me because I, I don't mean to impose my reading on it on, on others, but it suggests to me that the boys kind of partially disillusionment, partially, I could say now, misguided optimism about, about his, his prospects for the, for the future, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I, I'm nonetheless going to imitate your movement in, in, into and in your your faith in the the stability of a, of a career right something that likewise is is you know <laughs> difficult to imagine today that one can start a career and and, and go through and, and retire and have everything you know sort of work uh, maintain a, a level of stability uh, throughout and so the of course the snowflakes are very present there but uh, also quite ephemeral and I think people could tell by, we listed off some of the, your books, and one of them actually focuses quite decisively on this, on your father, on his work, on the ramifications of the loss of that strike. So exactly. you might want to say a little more about, yeah, the long-term sure. implications. Yeah, yeah. So, so the poem was, was first, and I, I knew that I wanted to explore and interestingly, I said, this reading brings me to a community that's very dear to me. I had always said to myself that if I had another academic career, I, I, would, I would study labor. Oh. And, and writing the memoir, I was the primary motive for writing the memoir was to give me an opportunity to dig in and figure out what actually happened. Right. And no, I don't know what actually happened, but it, it helped me kind, kind of make some sense out of this event that decimated my father kind of spiritually and emotionally, as I said, impacted my life so profoundly and the lives of so many other people. So I got to, to look back and, and think about how 
strikes have been historically manipulated. I mean, there's a very clear process for how one, how a, a, an authority structure dismantles or, and, and pre prevents strikes from occurring. There's a long history of this. And, and you know, the, what happened with the PACO strike was not a fluke by, by any stretch of the imagination. It could have been <laughs> foreseen very possibly. I noticed you kind of wincing at that a little where you you have some kind of I and you and you yeah. in the poem you describe your father as Odysseus strapped to the mast. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're very insightful to notice that. Yeah. And in fact, there were people who who predicted exactly that, right? And, and so my father was not oblivious to the the possibility. It was just such a an absurd idea that Reagan would fire 13,000 federal employees. There's no way this could happen. And, and I say, I tell this all, all the time, you know, the, the joke was, and they said this in the, in the union hall, what are they going to do? Fire us all? Ha 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 ha. Which yeah, is yeah, such yeah. a, such a ridiculous idea. And, and of course that's precisely what happened. So yeah, my, my grandfather was, was a PATCO official and, and had been, he started his career with PATCO as an engineer and eventually started a program recruiting women and African-Americans into the profession. Mm. And that's how my father got involved. Mm. So my, my grandfather was was management, <laughs> you know, uh, and so the the tensions in, in the family, you know, my grandfather kept saying all, all throughout the year, this is an ambush, don't do it. And my father likes, the, you know, I, I think it's part of the profile, the personality profile of air traffic controllers, right, was to, was the kind of pressure that one must withstand and to maintain a sense of clarity, knowing that there are hundreds, if not thousands of lives, depending on your voice, right? That kind of pressure has historically, I mean, we, we know that it is, has damaged a lot of people. But for someone who is interested in that job and, and committed to that job, that's not the kind of person who backs down very easily. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> And so my father was very much strapped to the mast of his own destiny, so to speak. Yeah. So he was, was he the local president for uh, the PATCO in, in president? Newark. Yeah. The Newark local. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and I do have... you have a sense of what that local was like? You know, there's been a, a long bad history of racism in unions in this country. Yeah. And so just, yeah, just a few words about that. Yeah. So my, my father was very, very, very outgoing, very domineering and a huge personality. And he would not let something so beneath him, like racism, <laughs> <laughs> dissuade him from anything. He put up with such constant daily insult <laughs> that, you know, I, I, I can't imagine it did not impact him in any way. Now, that's not to say that, you know, that was just constant overt racism. It was 1981. I mean, we, <laughs> we have, if we just look at the temperature in society today, right, and, and extrapolate that back a little while, while it's not hard to imagine the, the kind of 
passive, offhand, even unaware racism that was in the in the atmosphere at the time. As, as I indicate in the poem, I went to the Union Hall with him before the before well during the strike after the the Mendes called the strike, and it was a very the the collegiality the the support the the fraternity was was very strong and and I didn't get any sense of you know disharmony at all and. So I, while on the one hand we know, and I uncovered to my horror the the kinds of the kinds of not only just marginalization, the, the kind the, the ways that African Americans in particular and many other groups were prevented from participating in not only in unions, but as a result of not being able to join the union, not being able to get a job in the industry. But while we know that this history exists. It was not something that was present to me at the certainly not at, at 12 years old, and and certainly not in the moment of crisis that the the strike represents. Maybe we we can shift for for a minute to. I thought it'd be interesting for people to hear your thoughts about poetry in the United States. So, of course, there are other countries where. Poetry plays a much more central role. (laughs) We have poets in some countries who are jailed as uh, like labor activists are or disappeared. That that doesn't happen here. I I went to live in Nicaragua right after the overthrow of uh, Somoza and that Sandinista revolution was so much done to the music of poetry and articulated through poetry. But that's not that's not what we live with here. And yet some things are happening. So I thought it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, I was it 2016, it was 2016. I so Nicaragua has a national poetry festival, an international, sorry, it's a, it's a, a national event but they bring poets from around the world. This is how much poetry is revered in, in Nicaragua. And I attended this, I'd been invited to this festival in 2016. And I remember walking down the street and the school children just flocking around us, getting our autographs as if we were, we were you know, basketball players or something. <laughs> yeah, so it was really, it was really amazing. And, and the, the, you know, the two sides of that coin, as you point out, Paula, on the one hand, you know the you know who who does um, who do we kill first? You, know, you get rid of an ideal republic, you get rid of the poets, um, and there's a good reason for that. And so we're not in the U.S. We're not subject to that kind of that kind of violence. We're subject to another kind of violence, and I think we're not subject to that kind of violence because poetry is just not respected and not revered. It's not taught, and and so the the kind of violence that we do culturally is to prevent what we lose when we when we are not investing in poetry when we're not teaching poetry we're not thinking about poetry literature in general and the arts in general is we we lose a kind of critical practice critical and analytical practice that as you said in your introduction is rooted in the heart is rooted in a sense of human connection and right. I mean, just the the intimacy that is required for one to 
when we say we're, we're in order to read a poem, you have to recreate the thoughts in your mind, right? And that requires a, a vulnerability and openness, and it requires a, a willingness to embrace difference and, and otherness. And we have in the United States have dismissed and, and downplayed the value of that practice to such an extent that I think popularly it's, it's seen as frivolous and, and unproductive. I'm on the board of the PEN America, and that is a literary organization, um, writers who work to free and, and protect free speech around the world. And interestingly enough, my father was on a, a panel after the strike that was sponsored by, by PEN America with a bunch of other, with a bunch of writers and labor leaders, Lech Walensa uh, among them, you know, Dr. O among them. When my father moved toward activism, my mother is an artist and I had long been, as, you know, as difficult it was for me to admit it to myself, it took me a while to admit it. I had long been drawn to my artistic impulses, my creative impulses. And poetry allows me, and this is a, a hard-won understanding, so this isn't something that, that I, I came up with early on. Poetry uh, allows me to bring my desire for activism and my creative impulses together. I can as everything I've been describing, I can, I can try to achieve the, the, the kind of intimacy. I can try to achieve the, the kind of well-intentioned, ethical, rhetorical constructions that will allow someone to peacefully inhabit the ideas. And we know today how difficult <laughs> it is, what, what it seems like such an impossible request to, to ask our, our, our fellow neighbor to try on, just, just for a moment, try on a different idea. You don't have to keep it. You can set it <laughs> aside right away, but just entertain the idea. And that is, seems like such an impossible request now. I want to ask you to read Double Dutch now, if you would. I want to tell you a really quick story about Double Dutch. Recently, and just a few months ago, there's a line in the poem and, and You'll, 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 I don't know if you'll recognize what's happening or what the threat is because it seems so innocuous and it seems innocuous to me, but the state government of Minnesota uses Pearson, the company, to administer its standardized tests. And Pearson uses this poem, Double Dutch, in one of its statewide tests. Minnesota, state of Minnesota, Department of Education, asked Pearson to ask me if I would remove two lines from this poem because they felt threatened by the, these two lines. And this goes back to what we're saying about- See, Greg, you know, their poetry does matter. Poetry. <laughs> and so the irony, right? I mean, this is, yeah. this is what's, so, what's so interesting to me is, is on the one hand, is, you know, we dismiss it as no, no big deal. And, and you know, on the other hand, two lines in a poem were, are so threatening that you would destroy the entire coherence, cohesion of the poem just to just to remove them. Let's see. I, so Unless this is a we can guess which ones they Let's are. Guess, guess which ones they are. Mm -hmm. Double Dutch. The girls turning double Dutch bob and weave like boxers pulling punches, shadowing each other, sparring across the slack cord, casting parabolas in the air. 
They whip quick as an infant's pulse, and the jumper, before she enters the winking, nods in time as if she has a notion to share, waiting her chance to speak. But she's anticipating the upbeat, like a band leader counting off the tune they are about to swing into. The jumper stair steps into midair as if she's jumping rope in low gravity, training for a lunar mission. Airborne a moment long enough to fit a second thought in. She looks caught in the mouth bones of a fish as she flutter floats into motion, like a figure in a stack of time-lapse photos thumbed alive. Once inside, the bells tied to her shoestrings rouse the gods who've lain in the dust since the Dutch acquired Manhattan. How she dances patterns like a dust-heavy bee retracing its travels in scale before the hive. How the whole stunning contraption of girl and rope slaps and scoops like a paddle boat. Her misted skin arranges the light with each adjustment and flex, now heather-hued, now sheen, light listing on the fulcrum of her wrist and the bare jutted joints of elbow and knee and the faceted surfaces of muscle, surfaces fracturing and reforming like a sun-tickled sleeve of running water. She makes jewelry of herself and garlands the ground with shadows. Okay, great. I think I got the lines. <laughs> I'm guessing that they start with rouse the gods who have lain in the dust. And <laughs> Since the Dutch acquired Manhattan. Exactly. Oh my God. <laughs> Oof, we're delicate. <laughs> yes, but, yes. Those, those poor children subject to such horrible, threatening ideas. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I want to say about that poem, I think of Walt Whitman's I Sing the Body Electric mm -hmm. and he yeah. so he you answered that call in such a stunning way I think it's not possible to conjure up girls jumping double dutch more more beautifully than you've done I it's it's wonderful yeah, yeah very much a, a student and I'm so honored that you invoke Whitman I'm very much a student of Whitman Picking up on some of what we were talking about before with in terms of American poetry, I wonder if you've seen a change over the past, I don't know, five years or, or, or so. People yeah. might be interested to hear about what's going on. Well, there's a, a, a change and a resistance mm -hmm. as often happens, right? And so, and this was my story. My story, uh, I'm in academia because of poetry, you know, so I, I was always a good student but I never imagined being a university professor. I never, I, I didn't know what a university, I didn't know how one became a, a university professor. In some ways I, I still don't. <laughs> it's, it's still, still somewhat of a mystery to me. And, and I mean, and I, I say that facetiously, but, but it's true. There's still so much about academia that coming from where I came from, I, I just don't know, you know, what's behind the, the closed doors or what's behind the curtains. But what's happening, is, in, and again, my story was I went to college, did not do well, dropped out. Joined the Marine Corps, went back to college, did much better, but still wasn't, hadn't figured it out, dropped out. At 26, 
I went back to college having finally decided that I know it's frivolous. I know it's not going to get me a, the corporate job that uh, everybody's, you know, they're all narratives say I should be aspiring to. But I love reading books. I love talking about books. I'm going to be an English major. And I went to, in my first semester back, I'm flipping through the catalog, the course catalog, and there's this course called the Poetry Workshop, where not only do you get to talk about poems, but you get to write poems and share them with one another. And it just seemed like I can get college credit for, for doing this. <laughs> I was like, this is such a, this is going to be so, this is so cake, you know, I just think like, there couldn't be anything, in, and in my mind at the time, right, I thought there couldn't be anything less rigorous. But of course, I get into the class, yeah, yeah. oh, <laughs> there's a lot more to this than I thought. Yeah. But I, and I absolutely loved it, and, and it introduced me to a kind of life of the mind that I thought was reserved for you know, people with a, an awful lot of leisure time. And it is still pretty much the case, but understanding that I was capable of doing it, right? It wasn't a matter of, of capacity. That was a big light bulb for me. And I just kept taking those classes and studying and, and you know, I was on a dean's list and uh, got a scholarship and blah, blah, blah. You know, the rest is history, so to speak. And what we're finding, what I'm finding, I think what, what we're finding, I can confidently say across the board is that students of color and first generation students are flocking to creative writing classes mm -hmm. because it allows for a different kind of relationship to language and to knowledge production that, you know, that we didn't have in, in our conventional uh, um, pedagogical models of uh, previous, the previous decades of the last century, that, uh, certainly, right, where there was this kind of top down, you will, you will, you will understand the poem this way, this is what you should believe, think and believe about this poem. This is how to understand this poem, right. But if we come at literature from the perspective of the writer, it, and, and as someone, if we, when we think about it as someone who is capable of doing that thing too, right, or, or at least aspiring to that thing, I do think there are levels of, of complexity, then one, a student has a different relationship to, to the work, right? And, and I have to give, to empower students to figure out their own ideas about a poem, for example, and certainly this is the case for a novel or any piece of literature, just creates an entirely different relationship with the, the, the entire academic enterprise. And so as we hear uh, all of these calls for diversifying higher education, I think creative writing is and, and will continue to be increasingly a means for that very project. Yeah, yeah. And I think in addition to the increasing number of people going into poetry programs and writing, I understand that, for example, the Academy of American Poets has this poem a day program okay. where you can sign up to receive a poem a day. And they, I, they now have over 350,000 people around the country receiving a, poet, a poem a day. And I understand that they are increasingly 
younger people and people of color. And so I, there's a there's a great thing that's happening right now. We should we should announce <laughs> it'll come to impact the kind of poetry that's being written and maybe yeah. the the new ways of reaching audiences. Well, you know, and, and I think, you know, all roads lead back to this phenomena around critical race theory, right? The, the very fears that are, that surround the way we understand our history, the way we imagine ourselves to be, the way, the kinds of futures that we imagine for, for us as a, as a culture, as a, as a nation, as a world, that's going to be in large part guided, led by the, the our artists and, and, and writers, right? The, the people who are, who are doing the, the imaginative work. And, and so I think it's incredibly important that the, that the kinds of people who are drawn to poetry as you're, as you're describing are people who are thinking broadly about, as I say, the, the pronoun we. Right? And, and what can be evoked, how, how we can open that pronoun up in, in radical ways. So you have this poem that I love, and it's called Wishing Well. Mm. <laughs> and I want people to hear it. Wishing Well. Outside the Met, a man walks up, sun tweaking the brim sticker on his baseball cap. And he says, pardon me, old school. He says, you know, is this a wishing well? Yes, yeah, son. I say sideways over my shrug. Throw your bread on the water. I tighten my chest, wheezy as rockaway beach sand with a pull of faux smoke from my e-cig to cozy the truculence I hotbox alone and I am at the museum because it is not a bar. Because he appears not to have changed them in days, I eye the heel-chewed hems of his pants and think probably he will ask me for 50 cents any minute now, wait for it. A smoke or something. Central Park displays the frisking transparency of autumn, tracing paper sky, leaves like eraser crumbs gum the pavement. As if deciphering celestial script, I squint and purse off toward the roof line of the museum aloof as he fists two pennies from his pockets, mumbling and then aloud. My man, he says, hey, my man, I'm gonna make a wish for you too. I'm laughing now, so what? You want me to sign a waiver? He laughs along, ain't say all that, he says, but you do have to hold my hand and close your eyes. I make a starless night of my face before he asks, are you ready? Yeah, dog, I'm ready. Sure, sure, let's do this. His rough hand in mine inflates like a blood pressure cuff and I squeeze back as if we are about to step together from the sill of all resentment and timeless toward the dream source of unneeding, the two of us, hurdle, sharing the cosmic breast of plenitude when I hear the coins blink against the surface and I cough up daylight like I've just been dragged ashore. See now, you'll never walk alone, he jokes and is about to hand me back to the day he found me in like I was a rubber duck. And he says, you got to let go, but I feel bottomless. And I know he means well, though I don't believe. And I feel myself shaking my head no, when he means let go his hand. <laughs> it's a great ending. For, for me, I, the, it's a real kind of meditation on isolation and connection that that speaker who's 
We say this Jane. in poetry. In poetry world, we don't say you, we say that speaker. So yeah, kind of so, uh, very much alone. And, and very as, much jaded and cynical and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. his emotions betray him. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then at the end, that, that very much alone person, very reluctant to join hands, doesn't want to let go. And it makes me think a little bit about how our hardships can isolate us and the, exactly. the, the, our longings and wishes can help connect us. It's yeah. just beautiful, beautiful. Oh, thank poem. you. Thank you so much, Greg. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, Paul, I'm so glad I get to talk again. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And we hope that this is yet the, the beginning of more poetry conversations and poetry readings. Indeed. Thank you so much. Thanks again. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.